good morning. Most of you know me. Anyone who doesn't, I'm Stefan. I'm one of the elders here at Emmanuel Church. Over the past few weeks, we've been working through a series called God, Life, and Our Expectations. And today, we're going to look at two things that are shown in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 127. We're going to look at work, and we're going to look at home. Some of you are, might not want to hear about work on a Sunday. Others of you would want to be at home on a Sunday instead. But in any case, we're going to look at work and home. So let's read the word of the Lord, Psalm 127. This is a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Lord, we pray this morning, we lift praise to you. And I ask you today to give these words life, and speak what you have to speak out of your holy word. You are God, I am not, and we are not. And we're here today to show that we worship you, the holy God. Holy are you and lifted up. And we also ask today, Lord, that for those in our uh, congregation, those in our church, whether they're here today or not, those who are sick, facing illness, Lord, that you would bring your healing touch to them, that you'd bring a gentle touch upon their shoulder, that they would know, know in their hearts, in the deepest places of the inner man, that you are there with them and for them. So we ask for your healing, and we ask your anointing on this word today. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start with a question. What gets you up in the morning? I mean, some of us have children. Many of us still work. Whatever we do, what really gets you up in the morning? And basically, what's in your heart that really gets you going? Not just gets you up, but gets you going, right? What's your motive? People have different motives, right? There are a lot of things that come to mind. Some of them are positive. Many of them aren't, right? Think of some, like greed. This is going to, trust me, it's going to get better. <laughs> you might be saying in your heart, I want it all. I want it all and then some. And that may sound a little cartoonish, but in reality, it's the kind of motive that Jesus exposed when he answered 
the young rich ruler who asked what he needed to do to get into the kingdom of heaven. The young man's heart was exposed when he slinked away from that encounter because it revealed that he prized something more than the Lord himself. Glory is another one. Pride, glory, we're all in that in some way, right? I want to be the best. I want to win, right? So finally, somebody might compliment me. They might love me, all right? That's that's one one. And another is guilt. This is an interesting one. I can relate to this one, for better or worse. This is a big one for me. It says, I'm a failure. You say to yourself, I'm a failure if I don't do what I think I'm supposed to do. These are all motives, but they show something about what's in our heart, right? They pull back the curtain to let us see into our heart. And it's interesting how the things that are in our heart we also tend to focus most on. And we have a big, strong tendency to worship those things. It's a hard word, but as I was reading this passage, it became very clear to me that it has a lot to do with this. The Bible calls this idolatry, putting something that is not God ahead of him. So to quote Jesus, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, what we focus on dictates our actions. And living like this can be exhausting. I mean, I can tell you from experience, I know many of you out there are doing this same thing. It can be exhausting. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon calls this kind of pursuit, when it's done above God, chasing after the wind. It's a great image like a dog barking at the wind, but chasing at the wind is even worse because you're trying to catch it, and it's futile. If it's even possible to catch the wind, is it even worth it? That's how Solomon describes this kind of pursuit, and it is so true because it really just leaves us empty, right? And it leads to an empty life. So just before we go on, don't misunderstand me here, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with passions or hobbies if you like whittling wood, if you like running in the morning first thing, if you're into cars, whatever that thing is, it's okay. But you have to admit that it's tempting, isn't it? I notice those types of things creep up in my priority list that I have a little bit easier than, let's say, reading my Bible. It's kind of interesting to see how that just really, I find time for that. There's always room for dessert. We don't always want dinner. And that's a kind of chasing after the wind. It, it's just very much what this psalm is trying to get at. So I mentioned Solomon. It's believed that he wrote this, this wisdom psalm too. I mean, the, the very first, uh, well, they call it a superscription in, in the, the Bible. It's the first line. It says, it's a song of ascents, and it's of Solomon. And he didn't write it to focus on praise or thanksgiving or to lament sin or distress, something really negative, or to even recount the glory of Israel or Israel's history, but it's to help us see how life is or how it should be. And he used pictures in it. It's poetry. It was meant to be sung. Psalm is translated as song. 
So it uses lots of images, and it's more interesting. It's more engaging that way. And it uses stuff that people at the time could relate to, and some of those images we can relate to, too. Solomon even likely drew on his own experiences in this. But here are a few things the Bible has to tell us about Solomon. His reign started with a marriage to Pharaoh's daughter and an alliance with Egypt. This is verboten, marrying a foreign person, especially as a king. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, also forbidden, right? Not just one wife, but many, I don't know how, but he did it, and it was forbidden. And then his only son, right? He had three children, at least with the Bible recounts, two daughters and one son, Rehoboam. He was a bad king. It wasn't the worst, but he was definitely bad. And he was also the product of a marriage with an Ammonite, another foreign wife. So this was, again, forbidden. And to top it off, not trying to get on Solomon too much here, but, you know, to see it in its full context, he spent about, what they think, 13-ish years building his palace and other buildings for the government, but only seven building the temple. So we can kind of see here that for all of Solomon's wisdom, which we've heard about, we can also see that he was a flawed person, and he also failed to, to, to apply his own wisdom, but nonetheless, he had insights for us, and they still give us something to edify us, to, to build us up 3,000 years later, which truly tells you that there's something enduring about the Word of God. Now, let's get a little bit of context around Psalm 127. It's one of 15 psalms in a group of psalms. So the psalms is a book, and there are sections within it. This particular section of 15 is called the Songs of Degrees or Songs of Ascent, um, Ascents, which is to climb up. Um, the purpose of these psalms is debated. Most people, some people say it has something to do with the temple, having 15 steps, and the Levites would sing these 15 psalms on each of those steps. Most commonly, it's believed, though, that these were psalms sung by pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, coming from the outer areas of the kingdom to Jerusalem for three annual feasts during the year, right? This was given to us as a, a law, or a requirement of God in Deuteronomy 16. And they were, the, the men were supposed to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we call it Passover, Feast of Weeks, and Feast of Tabernacles. So it just gives you a little bit of context. So all that said, why would a pilgrim sing about home and work on the way to Jerusalem for a feast? I think it's just to remind us that the pilgrims' life wasn't spent on the road to Zion. For these people, that is. They spent most of their time where we spend our time. A lot of us work 40 hours a week if we are fortunate to have a job right now. Those who are retired seem to have even more stuff filling their time. Uh, but in any case, we spend most of our time either working or at home. So this psalm speaks to where we actually live. It's practical in that way. And in this Christian life, which is just a pilgrimage of sorts toward the new Jerusalem and heaven, right? We, this, Solomon's teaching encompasses all of it, right? And it says, basically, life 
without the Lord is empty. A chasing after the wind. So the psalm has two main divisions in it. Let's just kind of, you know, go to that too. And it's important. And verses 1 and 2 are kind of like a group. You can read them together. And verses 3 to 5 are a group. So there's two divisions. And to be honest, when I read, reread this, because I've read this before, but I've, when I reread it, I said, well, how on earth are these really connected? I mean, they just don't seem to be that connected. But really, what I found is that the unity of this psalm, it's there. It doesn't seem like it's there, but it is. And it's in a poetic way. It's unified by how it describes those places, how we live out our faith at work and at home, how that life plays out at work and home. So let's start with life at work. Even though it's Sunday, we'll talk about work. I promise you. Solomon had something to say about this. So for the first part of this psalm, verses 1 to 2, it really says work without the Lord is empty. Now that's important. It's pretty plain. If we look at it, the word vain is repeated three times. Vain. It's fleeting. It's futile. Purposeless. Meaningless. Whatever word you'd use, it kind of captures the sense of that. And it reads a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. Talks about all the things in life that are without meaning and how ultimately God is that meaning for us. If we look at verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. Build it in vain, right? This is a well-used and familiar verse, right? We've heard this before, and it applies to a lot of things, right? The first thing we see in there is it's about building a house. It's not any house, but it can be applied to your own house, your own family, It could be argued very easily that it's really about David's dynasty or the temple itself or even the kingdom of Israel. Regardless of how you read that, that house, in every case it underscores the idea that hard work is not a substitute for the divine presence. Rick's prayer spoke right to that. In this unknown time, we don't see what's ahead of us. We can work as hard as we want, but we really don't know where we're going. It's the Lord who's leading us. He's leading us. We follow him if we want to get there. So the question we need to ask ourselves, are are we building with God, or are we asking God to build with us? And it's a little different. Think about that. Are we building with God? Are we following him, or are we asking him to be our co-pilot. Who's leading who? I don't like that bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. It makes me cringe every time, and I thought, that's terrible. That means I'm in charge. And I didn't do such a great job before Jesus found me. I was not doing a very good job at all. He's the pilot, period. So then we read, continuing on in verse 1 here, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Okay? I don't know about any of you. I don't live in like a gated community or have a wall around my house, but we have at least a security system. Anyway, in, in those days in ancient world, they didn't have security systems and satellites. So if you were a kingdom, 
you'd have a city like Jerusalem at the center of it, it would be a walled city. And on those walls, there'd be people watching. They're stationed there. That was their security system, their early warning system. These people were a huge part of it, but even they're fallible. And when I think back to the Titanic, right? There were people in a crow's nest whose job it was to look out ahead of the ship, even in the cold of night, looking for icebergs in the North Atlantic. They were not sleeping, but the ship still hit an iceberg. For all their best efforts, they still failed, right? Alert lookouts are also not a substitute for God. Hard work isn't a substitute. Being vigilant isn't a substitute for God. Now, both of these things are work, building, watching. They are activities. I'm not saying that we don't need to work, and neither is verse 1. That would be foolish. God intended for Adam to work. He intended for Adam to work the garden. It wasn't a punishment. We're still intended to work. It's one of the big ways that God, work, that God works in this world is through us. We do things. He works through means. He can do it himself, but he wants us in it. God wanted David, he wanted the Philistines to be defeated. God wanted the Philistines to be defeated by David, in fact. If we read in Psalm 2, uh, um, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines came up against Israel, not once, but twice. And God could easily have just smote them. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He had angels do it. He didn't need the Israelites to fight, but he had them fight. And not only that, when David prayed, he asked, should I do this? The first time, Lord says, no, do the other thing, and I'll give them into your hands. Okay, and it worked. Imagine that. God led, we followed. It worked. He gave it. And then it happened again, and David asked, should I go this way? And Lord says, yes, this time do that. Wait for the sound in the treetops, and you'll hear it. Then you go, and I'll give them into your hands. I don't know why that works, that, that particular passage works for me, but I think it's a beautiful illustration that it's not just for the blessing in our life. We're even fighting battles. It's not our battle to fight. The Israelites weren't really known for the most amazing weapons, the best technology, all of that. In reality, it was God. Look at Jericho. Look at Gideon. God is the one who fights. He's the pilot. He's the captain or general, whatever your analogy is. So moving on from pictures of a construction worker and a watchman in verse 1, we go into now the image of a workaholic in verse 2. Now, this is something we can relate to. Most of us can relate to this in some way in the modern day, unless you have a walled city that you're living in. Um, but the person here is shown working to exhaustion day and night. They're driven to do so. Look, it says they rise up early. They go, they go late to rest. They eat the bread of anxious toil. This is language that talks about, that even goes back to Genesis 3. This is what work became after the fall. God cursed the ground for Adam's disobedience. He said it was going to be hard. 
He didn't say we weren't going to have to do it, but it showed what it did to work. Work was supposed to be joyful and delightful and purposeful, and it became something of a toil. And in this, we see people who are still, the, the image of a person still trying to strive that way on their own. Actually, that person reminds me, now, I might be dating myself with this, of a guy named Fred the Baker. I don't know if any of you remember commercials from the mid-80s, Dunkin' Donuts. Time to make the donuts, right? Guy with a big push broom mustache, little visor, Dunkin' Donuts. This is back in the day when donuts were actually freshly baked. They weren't carted in from somewhere. You could smell them. They tasted good. <laughs> no offense to Dunkin' Donuts fans. It was better back then. Real, legit donuts. And those God-shaped donuts, donut holes, we called them munchkins. Those were especially awesome. Anyway... In this commercial, Fred the Baker, you see him in his home with his little visor and his thing. He's like, oh, it's time to make the donuts. And he goes to the front door and you see him leave. Next scene, he comes in. It's raining hard. Grabs his umbrella. Oh, it's time to make the donuts. He's like a postman. And the next time, it's wind and snow. Time to make the donuts. And you think this guy is actually more faithful than like the U.S. Post? Right? And at the very last scene, you even see a twin of himself come back in as he's about to make the donuts, and the guy said, I already made the donuts. Not only did he make it once, he made it twice that day. And it was clever advertising to show that they made fresh donuts twice a day, and they smelled awesome for anyone who remembers those days. But the commercial works. We remember it now, what, 30, almost 35 years later, because it sort of spoke to something. It speaks to like a cultural value. The guy is kind of cute and friendly but, and innocuous, but in reality, it kind of makes light of the fact that that's what we value. Work hard, harder. That's how you get there. That's how you do it. That's how you achieve that goal. That's how you get your glory. Got to make time to make the donuts twice a day, every day, no matter what, to exhaustion, and then we call it good. God rested, and it was good. We work and call it good. That's the fall. That's the effect. So it shows a difference. And workaholism, whatever you want to call it, I'll just call it workaholism, is worthless because God, as we see in verse 2, he gives to his beloved sleep. Right? Okay, I like a nap. I've heard a nap is a spiritual practice. That's a good thing. Good for me. Um, but it's a gift from God. And yet, a workaholic looks at it as a necessary evil. It slows me down. It's time I can't work. It's time that I can't be productive. And when I do it, I'm not even sleeping well because I'm thinking about the stuff that I want to do. I got to make the donuts. <laughs> now, sleep helps us recover from the toil right, of work. And Ecclesiastes 5.12 even mentions this. It says that it's sweet. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. So sleeping beyond its obvious things of being a gift and being restorative can also be an act of faith. It's like giving up an offering from the money you work so hard for. It's like taking a day of rest. And I'm not preaching this like I do this stuff well as far as the rest part goes. 
But what it really says is in doing those things by taking that money out away from me and putting it ahead first or putting rest ahead, which God said is good, you're saying, I'm not God. I'm not in control, and I can't do it all. We're acknowledging in those acts we have to do it faithfully because otherwise there's no, we can't do it. But if we can, it says in faith, God, I'm not God and you are and you've got it. The psalm says our God never sleeps nor slumbers and he does it so we can. He knows that we come from the dust and we'll go back to the dust. He doesn't and he's got it. That's what that is about. Sleep is a gift. Most of us are Many of us, I'll say not most, I don't know what your situation is. Most of us are tired because we're too occupied. Chasing the things we want, wasting time on things that are not consequential. I play word game on my phone. It's amazing how much time that can eat. Some people, it's Facebook, Instagram. You know, insert whatever it is you're into. That can be inconsequential. All of it can just be meaningless if we don't have God in our work. And I can't keep reiterating that. It's essential. Now, I think about in this, we have to look at that. So we, we looked at the futility of some of these working in our own power, and we looked back to Genesis to see what happened when we disobeyed God and tried to be the pilot ourselves. And then we look forward to Jesus Christ. His victory over death resurrecting and ascending and bringing about the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God, it does so many things, right? It redeems, it brings value to otherwise meaningless jobs. It frees us from the snares of work and achievement that easily our heart desires and makes into idols. It's freeing, it releases us from the bondage of living for anything and anyone else beside God. It enables us to live out our faith so that others can see through us and our work just how marvelous God is. So how? How do we fill our work with Christ? I mean, it's easy to say that, but fill him? He's not, not a liquid. I can't pour him out into my job or you know, sprinkle him around like that. It would not to be disrespectful, or irreverent, but it, it, it does beg the question. So, ultimately, I think it calls for us to have a mental change. We need to look at the work that we do as a calling from God, not a calling to be God. Now, no one here in their right mind is going to say, I'm God, but we can act that way. That's the thing. It's subtle. It doesn't just come up and say, you're God, you got it. It's you can have that mental shift. We have to say it's not a calling to be God. It's a calling from God. So here's the pattern that sums up how to apply that. And it gets very much to what Rick prayed earlier, just right before I got up here. I don't want to call it a formula, but it is a pattern, right? We pray and work. Then we work and pray. We praise God and repeat. Now in this prayer, 
it's assumed that we're listening as well, but let's, let's kind of put this in Bible context here. This is very much the pattern that Nehemiah and his people used when rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. There was work and prayer. They didn't expect prayer by itself to build a house, and you can't. It can't keep watch over a city just by praying. However, we shouldn't expect God to be in any of those things if we don't pray. We have to pray and acknowledge him and invite him into those things and put these things below him. God, thank you for my hobby. Uh, I'm thinking of Paul Alderman here. I keep getting back to that fixing cars thing. Cars a big sense of glory and pride for man. That can capture the heart, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't capture it above God. So, enough said on that. There's no way to glorify God without prayer like this. There's just none. So, are we building with God? Or are we asking God to build with us? I have to admit I fall short on this too often. Um, but I can honestly say that when I pray first, when I invite God into the work that I do, even praying for this sermon especially, which was a welcome invitation from Daniel when he offered it, it forced me to pray and to think, and then I worked. And God just has this amazing way of intervening, getting himself into the work that we do in ways that we don't even think about it. Things have a way of having their direction changed when we do that for the better. So that's section one, right? Verses one to two. Now we can move into the second part, which is in verse, verses three to five. This is about life at home. Hmm. Solomon says some really clear things in the first two verses, but he gets more subtle with us in the last three. It doesn't seem to make sense. As we transition into the second half of this psalm, we move from emptiness to fullness. From empty work to a full quiver. And it's, okay, what, how's that connected? But the contrast ties them together. Empty is obviously the opposite of full, but both parts of this psalm are teaching the same thing. Sort of like looking at a coin from two different sides. It's still the same coin, right? Life at work is pointless without God, but so is home home life. Now, if we look at verse 3, what we see in there, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So God clearly says, children are a gift, and it depends on grace. It's a gift from God. And the word heritage here, you know, it not a word we commonly use, but we do know the word inheritance, and it's similar, how it's used. It's used in the Bible many times, and it's, let's use this, let's point to this. God describes the promised land as an inheritance in Exodus and Joshua and even Isaiah. So children are a gift, an inheritance, a gift from God, a precious gift. Before we go forward, I just want to, you know, clarify something, too, because it's important when we read psalms and things like that that are 
thousands of years removed from us that the original cultural context is about sons in, in this second half. In the modern day, we can really broaden it to apply to children. It, it still holds up, but we need to understand, to understand the other parts about arrows and other things about enemies at the gate. You really need to understand that this is referring to sons, but I'll, I'll use that to explain how it can apply more broadly. Just a little, keep that under your hat for the moment. So children, like sleep, are also a reward, and they're parallel in this text. They're, they're similar. And if all this is true, then as it relates to children, no one deserves to have children. God doesn't give children because he sees what a wonderful parent we are or can be. And for some of us who've had issues with things like fertility and fertility, fertility is not a matter of merit. That also means that God isn't punishing us when we don't have children. It just doesn't connect that way. We want it to be, if this, then that. God isn't punishing people who don't have children. It's not a matter of demerit. We didn't do something wrong. God gives as he chooses, and fertility, children, these are in his hands. We're not God. We can't do it. Doctors can't do it. God can do it. He's the one who does it. Becky and I clung to this idea, and it helped us a great deal while we were struggling with that very idea. The text continues in verse 4, and it reads, Behold, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What? <laughs> How are they? Are they? They're not arrows. They're like arrows, right? So how are they like arrows? Well, first off, what's an arrow? It's a piece of wood. Men is a weapon. But the last time I checked, arrows don't grow in the woods, right? They're made out of wood. They, they have to be fashioned and shaped, um, which means that it takes skill, and it's under, an undertaking that requires patience and requires God's provision in the metaphor here of raising children is like fashioning an arrow. And frequently, you only launch them once. So it's very meaningful. But secondly, arrows can be used by a warrior for defense and protection. And that's what children can also become for their parents. Now, in ancient Israel, in that time especially, we see the benefit of this in verse 5. It says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, children. He shall not be put out and we put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Well, the image here is being implied, right? Imagine a man who had children in his younger days. Now he's older, maybe middle-aged or older, and he's got this full quiver. Quiver is a place to put your arrows. So if you've got a lot of arrows and a big quiver, you're full. Charles Spurgeon said if you've got a small quiver and you've got one arrow, you're still full. But regardless, is an older person who's got this full quiver, and he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. In ancient Israel, 
sons would go to the city gate. Right? This is where disputes, legal disputes, transactions would even occur here. They would defend their parents in these places. This is a place where they would seek justice for their parents. They're the defenders. They would protect them and do what's right for their parents. Armed, armed conflict would also frequently come to those city, city gates because otherwise there's a wall. That's where the invader would try to get through. So again, there's a defense kind of component to that. Children in a bigger context are like the city, the people of the city. In any case, the law of God requires us to honor our mothers and fathers, our parents, in Exodus 20. Now, I know this is hard, especially you know, for some of us who don't have always the best relationships with our parents, but the Bible still calls us to honor them. How that looks can be different, I grant that, but there's still that command that stands. If we can, we care for them. We seek their security, their protection, especially as they get older. Sometimes we're going to have to make decisions for them. It could be even a matter of physically carrying them, picking them up. Sometimes it could just be even battling loneliness if they're, you know, I have a father who's in an, elder, an, an older, elder person's community. Eventually he'll be in a nursing home and he'll be possibly battling loneliness. I'm not supposed to just leave him there. My job as a son is to help him fight loneliness. I can still be a protector in that way. It doesn't end there. So we can kind of think about this as like, okay, great. God gives us gifts. Everybody loves gifts. Who doesn't love Christmas? Holidays, you get gifts. A birthday, I get a gift. Gifts are good. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But like we sang today, is from God and to God is the cycle. God gives us children in some cases so that it leads back and it points back to God, His glory. We're to fill our work with God, otherwise it's going to be empty, empty and meaningless. Same is true for our homes. The, children, the security children provide should be a reflection, a small indication, a little, a little glimpse of the security that God provides. God intends for us to point back to him. It's not for us. We're not the God. He's God. From him to him. And there are a variety of ways we can do that. We can remind ourselves that they're a gift, that they're an image given, uh, created. They are a person in the image of God created by him. He's the one who gives them. And God himself is a father. He gave us Jesus as a gift as well. To us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, says Isaiah 9, 6. Giving children for protection and security. The Lord intends for the child, for Jesus, the Son of God, to be the ultimate source for us, a refuge, safety. That is a gift. Our homes are empty without him. Children and a spouse, they can't satisfy like that. 
not the way Jesus can, and that's by design. I mean, I can only imagine, I have a daughter, many of you know this, but for those of you who don't, I have a little daughter, when she's old enough, imagine me saying to her these words. I kind of wrote this down because it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it gets the point home. I would say, Evelyn, I would like you to be my God. Please me in every way, make my life complete and fulfilling, bring me ultimate happiness and delight that will never end. Seriously? (laughs) She's going to look at me like I'm crazy, and she should. And that sounds funny, but in reality, how many of us can deny that children or a spouse that love you feel, the tender embrace, is not easy to idolize that and to kind of lose sight of what that is. We can put that above God himself, the one who gave it to us. If we put our children on the throne of our heart or the throne of our home, how can we teach them to treasure Jesus? I'm not saying children aren't valuable. I love my daughter. Every day I'm reminded of it when I get that hug. There's nothing like it, and I never expected it. I didn't believe it. You know, everybody kind of embellishes a little bit because children are cute, especially people who have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Oh, that's... But when you actually get that, that kiss or that time where they desire to come near you, it's easy to see how tempting that can be. Not a bad thing, but not the ultimate thing. Without Christ, it's empty. So what can we do about it, right? Now, before I answer, I'm not going to act like I'm some authority on this. Some of you are old pros at this. (laughs) Many children taking care of grandkids and all that. You get a gold star. Some of us are just starting out. We need to learn from your experiences. But in any case, the application here is the same. We need to fill our word, our homes with his word, that being the Bible. Some people put verses up. Some people just have time where they pray together. This is the point of worship as a family. Those little moments can be moments where we bring God into that. We don't want to go through the motions. It's easy, especially when you're saying, giving thanks for a meal, let's say. Just, oh, thank God for the meal, blah, 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 and to go through that. But in reality, that can be a very powerful moment. People see that, and they say, here's somebody who actually believes in God, in a living God, and who they acknowledge that person as giving me the, even the food on here, our daily bread. That moment can be holy if we make it, and we don't go through the motions. We bring God into it. Again, this is, you know, remedial for some of you, but I think it's still worth saying. So that's it. (laughs) Easy as one, two, three, right? With God's help, we can get there, so. In conclusion, Really, I just want to say, on this side of heaven, we need to be concerned with life at work. To go to a job, we have bills to pay. We have a home where we have people who we love. But a day's coming when Jesus is going to return. Our work, in the way we've known it, will be over. Our families, individual, big, small, whatever, are going to be brought into one big family of God in heaven. 
What matters on that day has everything to do with what we talked about today. What matters on that day is that we find everything in Christ, that He is our one and all. Our life at work and at home should lead us to seek our Savior every day, even in the little things. We should strive to God as we make this pilgrimage towards the new Jerusalem that awaits us. Sometimes it's hard, it may feel like a toil, but it is, in fact, there's a gift waiting.